0: Well, we've talked about the, the substance of sin. That's where we began. What is sin? What does it mean when we say that we are born in sin? What is the essence of sin and what is the expression of sin? And tonight we turn to look at the source of sin, the scope of sin, and the solution to sin. So tonight we are covering three big areas, the source of sin, the scope of sin, and the solution to sin. Uh, Joel Beakey, who is a wonderful and brilliant theologian and pastor, who's also president of Reform Puritan, uh, Puritan Reform Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has written numbers of wonderful works Uh, says this about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion for people who are basically good but sometimes do wrong. In fact, if you were to want a, a short summary of the difference between a theological conservative and a theological liberal, this would be the definition Theological liberals believe that every human is born basically good, and that we learn how to sin through sinful choices, that we're not born in sin. Theological conservatives believe that no human is born basically good, that we're born in sin, and we're under the dominion of sin from the moment of our birth. You cannot reconcile those two approaches to human beings. You either are at one place or another, and there is no middle ground. So Christianity is not a religion for people who are basically good but sometimes do wrong. It is the good news of salvation for people whose hearts are profoundly corrupted by enmity against God. The devil always attacks attacks most fiercely those truths that are most important to the faith. And I believe there are three three truths related to sin that in our era the devil is not only attacking, but in many churches effectively attacking. Uh, The first is the doctrine of original sin. Original sin doesn't mean only that sin began in Adam, it does mean that, but it means that we're all born in sin because Adam is our representative. From the moment we are born, there's not a moment that we are not sinners who sin, not a single moment. The second doctrine is radical depravity, that every dimension of our lives is overwhelmingly influenced by the reality that we are sinners who sin. That is why the doctrine of free will is such an important doctrine to get right. And it's important to understand that there is a tremendous difference between the doctrine of free will and free choice. Free choice is not free will. We make free choices every day of our lives. We make choices that are not forced by anyone at all. They are our choices, and we own them as our choices. That is not what freedom of the will is about. Freedom of the will is about the control center of our lives. We all make free choices, but what is the source inside us that leads us to make the choices that we make. And if it's true that we are born in sin, then it is equally true that our control center inside of us from which we make decisions is controlled by our sinful condition. That means simply that from the moment we're born until we are converted by the grace of God, Our choices are going to be driven by what makes us the most happy, what we perceive to be the best for us. Do you believe that you can make decisions as a sinner that you perceive to be exactly right for you but may be fully wrong from the perspective of the Word of God? Yes. So free will does not exist in the sense that we often conceive it because either your will the control center of your life from which you make decisions either it is under sin or it's under the sovereign rule of the spirit of god through the word of god it, there is no in between and as believers we want our lives directed not by our desires not by our wants not by our wishes Not by our feelings, not by our circumstances, not by other people. We want our decisions directed in everything we do by the word of God because we know that we're born radically depraved. The third thing that's not on the list here is our moral inability to make right choices outside the intervening power of the Holy Spirit. If all I have in my decision-making is my brain and my feelings, I could make and would make lots of bad decisions. What I need is the power of the Spirit of God speaking to me through the Word of God to enable me to make decisions that are in accordance with the Word of God so I am confident then that I'm walking in the will of God. So let's talk about, first of all, let's talk about original sin Adam and Eve were created in the image of God with free will that means they could they could have their will controlled by their own flesh or they could have their own will their will controlled by the spirit of God so they are those that have free will there's only other one other human in the universe that's ever been in the universe who had absolute free will, could choose to disobey God or to honor God. Who was that? Jesus. That's why the Bible calls him the last Adam, the final Adam, the second Adam. So Adam and Eve had free will, and they were able to make whatever choices they wanted to make with the consequences of those choices. So if they had chosen to obey God, would they have lived forever? Yes. But what did they do? They chose out of the desires of their heart to disobey God, and they faced the consequences. Not just for themselves, because the Bible makes it clear that every human being is in Adam. He is our head. There's only one human race. And Adam is the first human of the human race. And every human in the human race, red and yellow, black and white, we are all in Adam. He is the source from which all sin emanates. And yet he is not to blame because God assigned him the responsibility of being our representative. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Paul was uh, very, very clear on this reality. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to whom? Everybody. Everybody. Everybody is in sin. We're born in sin because we're born in Adam. Now, the next word is very important. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men... What's, what's the translation of the next word in your Bible? Because. Now, in the original language, the phrase is a phrase that's rightly translated, in whom, in whom. And what that phrase indicates is that we all sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. So, Paul wants to establish that, that we are sinners because we're in Adam. But then he expands it. Look at verse 13. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So, from Adam forward, we are sinners. Every human is a sinner. But the nature of being a sinner, and you and I need to understand this because we're all in this mess together, <laughs> the nature of being a sinner is that we try to hide the fact that we're sinners. We cover up our sins. It's endemic to every human being, Christian or non-Christian, to try to cover up our sins, to hide our sins. That's endemic to us. We don't want to admit. Who wants to admit that we're sinners? It's easy to admit I made a mistake. I messed up. (laughs) I did the thing that I shouldn't have done. I said the thing. But to say that word, I sinned against you. I violated this covenant relationship that I have with you. That's hard. So it's endemic to us as sinners in our nature that we do not want to admit that we're sinners. Now, isn't this true of us? This is hard to admit. It's easy to see somebody else's sin, isn't it? And to point it out. Not to them. Who do we point it out to? Whoever will listen to us. They. They. Them, those people. We don't want to admit our sin, but we will see other sins and point them out. And here's the third thing that's endemic to every human. I promise you, if you went out to Burke County Jail tonight and interviewed the inmates, in all the years I've visited jails, and I've visited lots of jails and lots of prisons, in all the years I've done that, I've yet to meet somebody who's guilty. I'm serious. Why? Because it's endemic to us as sinners to blame other people for our sin. I wouldn't be this way if, 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 and the list is long. Now, what Paul wants us to see is that that is why God gave us the law. God gave us the law because we are sinners and God is gracious and kind to us to give us the law, to give us his standard. That's what verse 13 is all about. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law because the law makes clear what sin really is. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses because sin was in the world and where there's sin there's death Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, the word type here is a rich word that means representative. He is the one who represented every human, who was a type of the one who was to come. Not only does he represent humans, he is the first Adam who anticipates the second and final Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now built on that, Paul makes this argument, beginning in verse 15. But the free gift, the free gift that God brings to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel by His grace is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, lots and lots of sin, brought justification. God brought us before the bench of his justice, perfect justice in the heavenly court, and based upon what he did in Jesus Christ at the cross and through the resurrection, God declares us just and righteous before him. When we stand before the bar of God and God says, are you guilty of sin? What is the response of every one of us in this room? Are you guilty? Yes, Your Honor. I am guilty. What should be your punishment? Death and hell. And what does God say? I have sent my son to take upon himself the punishment you deserve And based on what he did for you, there is no more guilt. There is no more shame. You are not bound in your sin anymore. You are free. It's marvelous. It's overwhelmingly marvelous. It is what God has done for us when we turn in repentance and faith to him. And then in verse 17, Paul says, If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. And God does that for us who are in sin as a gift of His grace, and He does it in in such a way that He enters our lives by His Holy Spirit and He brings us from death to life. He brings us under conviction of our sin. He gives us the gift of repentance, seeing the weight of our sin. we turn to Jesus and He gives us the gift of faith that causes us to trust Jesus alone. Because in ourselves, we would never move toward God because we do not have the ability to do that. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. Look at these verses. Original sin. Original sin means that we're all sinners, and we're sinners from birth, and we sin by choice and by nature. Radical depravity means everything about us is overwhelmed by sin, so there's no part of us that's not sinful. And the lack of ability means that sin has so overwhelmed us that we have no natural ability, no moral ability to choose the right way. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. These are verses that come from the Old Testament. Paul is putting together here a kind of a litany of verses. But he wants us to see that everything about us is sinful. This is not fun reading, but listen to what he says. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. Now, no Jew would have agreed with Paul. No Jew. Paul says, are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're the people of God. We receive the promises of God. We receive the covenants of God. We receive the good gifts of God. We receive the law of God. We're God's people. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin here, sin as a power that is in the universe that brings us under rightfully the wrath and condemnation of God. We're all under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. Look at the negatives, they're piled up here. None, no, not. Who is righteous from birth? Where is the human being that is righteous from birth? Paul says there's not anybody. None is righteous. No, not one. Now if that's true, Paul then says... Our minds are corrupt. No one understands. So you're talking to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever says, I want you to know I believe in God. Now, what you can know is if they're unbelievers, their mind has no comprehension of who God is. None. Now, they're making a true statement, but the only God they can know is the God they conceive in their mind, and their mind is under the power of sin. Their will is perverted by sin. No one seeks for God. No one by nature from birth is seeking after God. We're seeking after a good life. We're seeking after good health, we're seeking after good circumstances, we're seeking after good conditions, we're seeking after what we desire to feel good about ourselves and others, but we're not seeking God. No one seeks God from birth. This is Paul. All have turned aside. Turned aside from what? From God. From the Word of God. Together they have become worthless sounds cruel doesn't it it doesn't it's not cruel if the only value we have is in relationship to god outside of god there is no usefulness no one does good not even one this is our condition this is who we are as sinners who sin and then paul takes us from our lips to our feet, and He covers everything about us. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, this is just here. This is here, right in this area of our body. Paul says it's all corrupt, and it's corrupted by sin, but then he moves from there to the feet to cover all of the human body and all of the human family. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Listen, as sinners, the only hope we have for ourselves is in relationship to other people. So in order for a sinner to feel good about himself or herself, we've constantly got to be comparing ourselves to other people. Now, isn't this true? You can find at any given point somebody who's better than you, and you can find somebody who's worse than you. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those other folks. Because the only sinner's hope is in relationship to his understanding or her understanding of basic moral goodness. And when you have that understanding and that's all you've got, you can always find somebody who is worse than you are. Now, one more time, you and I need to get straight about this as believers Where do unbelievers look to find the people that they're better than? Where do they look? Yes. And we in the church hear that and we say we're going to beat up on ourselves because we really are that sinner. Yes, we are. (laughs) Yes. You could go to any person in this community who's lost and they could look inside this room beginning right here and find people worse than they are. problem is that when we stand before God on judgment, the standard for judgment is not going to be Rob or April or Greg or me. The standard for judgment is going to be the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get over this. People say that they're hypocrites here in this church and they're sinful people in this church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always have been, always will be. And we need to stop listening to that because it comes from the devil. We're saved by what? The grace of God. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would be the worst of people. Our throats and our tongues and our lips and our feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths they are ruined and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why most unbelievers do not like any talk of the wrath of God or the fear of God because the God in whom they believe is not a God of wrath and fear. The only hope they have is that He is loving as they understand loving, and in the end, He's going to accept them. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will ever be justified before God, no matter how morally pure and perfect they are. No matter how good they are, no matter how much they've contributed to the community, no matter how many committees they've served on to make the community a better place, that will not save them. Nothing we do. Because God has given us His law not to save us, but to show us our sin. Sin is endemic to every human being. Now turn again, just very quickly, to Genesis 3 because when it comes to sin, you and I have no one to blame. I can't point my finger at you. You can't point your finger at me. I can't say, well, it was my mama if I'd had a better mama or daddy. All of that is covering our sin. All of that is looking for a reason that we're sinners. We're sinners because we're born in sin. In Genesis 3, when Satan comes in the form of a serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan appeals to our sinfulness by birth and nature to get us to doubt the Word of God. Is the Word of God true? Can you and I doubt, I'm not going to answer this question, but I am going to raise it. Can you and I doubt the word of God at one or two places and still say we believe in the absolute truth of God's word? We need to think about that. The more our society decays, the more churches that hold to the inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of Scripture will be attacked. And what we will be asked to do time and again is compromise our commitment to the absolute truth of God at certain very critical places in our culture. It's going to happen. It's already taking place. Is God's Word absolute truth? And then Satan wants us to deny the truth. Look at verses 3. But God said... uh, Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which God didn't say, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He's speaking as if he is God. You shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat it eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil That's how Satan works he appeals to our natural sinful state to cause us to doubt God's word deny God's word and then distort God's word so that we begin to accept for ourselves some things we believe to be true that are in contradiction to what is taught in the Word of God. It's very interesting that in the Bible there are three different places where God shows us how Satan works. In Genesis, in the temptations of Jesus, and in the writings of 1 John. Now, I want you to see this because what, um, what Satan does is that he appeals to physical, material desires, to things that are beautiful and glorious, and to things that bring greatness and power. He appeals to natural desires that are inside every one of us. We're born with them. And then when we cave in to what he is seducing us to believe and do, our lives get turned upside down. For example, look at, look at Genesis 3. When the man and the woman have sinned and they went and hide and God came looking for them and intervened, he did not intervene without judgment. He brought judgment because sin always carries consequences. So in verse 16, he says, one of the consequences of your sin for the woman is pain and childbirth. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth or you will bring up or you will rear children. It will be painful, it will be hard, it will be difficult, it will be demanding, it will be disappointing, and at times it will be devastating to you. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire will be that you found this man that will meet your needs, and when he doesn't, you will want to rule over him, and you create this context in which he is seeking to rule over you, and you're seeking to rule over him, and you've got war in your home. So when marriages get in trouble, just think about this. When marriages get in trouble, what is the bottom line problem in every troubled marriage? What is it? not finances, it's not in-laws, it's not money. What is it? It's sin. It's not a psychological problem, an economic problem, a sociological problem, a therapeutic problem. It's a biblical problem that has to be addressed in a biblical way. Now, God's given us these desires, these fundamental desires in our lives that we cannot ever reach on our own. We try, but we can't meet them on our own. If you think about your life before you became a believer, just think about your life before you became a believer, before you became a faithful follower of Jesus. If what the Word of God says is true, then you were looking for something in your life that would give you ultimate meaning. You wanted to find ultimate satisfaction and joy. And the more you couldn't find it, this is true with every believer, the more you couldn't find it, the more you chased after it. Wherever you could look. You were longing for it. You needed it. But you never could find it. And you never would have found it. Unless God had intervened in your life and changed you by His grace, you would still be chasing whatever that is today. You know what hell is? People who spend eternity chasing for what they're looking for, now knowing what it is, and they'll never have it. That's hell. People chasing what they're looking for, believing it will bring them satisfaction, now knowing what it is. And they will spend eternity chasing after it, but never possessing it. Now very quickly, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to three places. You've done sword drills in the past, some of you. So you work with your children in Awana. So go to Genesis three, and then put a, something in Genesis three and go to Luke four. This is Luke's record of the temptation, Luke four. and then go from Luke four. Over to 1 John 2. Satan has no new method. Satan's not... He's not creative. He's under the control of God. So I want you to see what the Bible says about how Satan does his work because it is always the same. So we're going to go... We're going to go from the Garden of Eden to the desert to the world. We're going to go from Genesis to Luke to 1 John. So when Satan comes to Eve and tempts her, he tempts her first with the physical and the material. So he says to Eve, looks at the the tree, verse 6, chapter 3 of Genesis. So Satan is tempting her with the physical and material when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, physical, material. Satisfaction from the physical and the material. Nana watches. Charles Stanley, every Sunday morning when she's at our house. Last Sunday, Charles Stanley was preaching on the temptations. He's been, in his teaching and preaching, probably the best in terms of application. He does the best applications of anybody I know how this Word of God applies to our lives. And he gave an acronym, and I, I thought at first, that's kind of silly. <laughs> and then I got to thinking about it. No, it's not. Here's the acronym, H-A-L-T. H-A-L-T, it spells the word halt. And he said, Satan knows us well. He knows us well, and he knows when we are most subject to to his temptations. Now, you th- I want you to think about this. And I want you to think about your life. H. When you're hungry. When you're hungry. Now, any of you get so hungry that you gotta eat? I mean, really, that hungry you gotta eat? You get so hungry that if you don't get something to eat, whoever's around you is gonna wish that you had eaten? H. when Jesus was in the wilderness how long had he been there without food you think he was hungry if he was truly human he was hungry so when Satan said turn these stones into bread do you think Jesus' first thought was I can't do that I don't have the power could he have done it absolutely in 1 John chapter 2 Luke 4, the first temptation is turning stones into bread. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not, him, that, not in him. That's absolutely black and white. For all that is in the world, and the first thing he says is the desires of the flesh, hunger is a desire of the flesh. H-A, angry. You ever been just a little bit irritated? You didn't know what to do with your irritation, your anger? Maybe you're angry at your husband, your wife, maybe a friend, maybe a co-worker. You don't know what to do with it. So you stuff it down. You don't pay attention to it. Does it go anywhere? No. Then you get angry the next day. And by the fifth day, if this is normal, and it's normal, unfortunately, what happens to that anger? When it comes out, how bad is it? How rational is it? Not at all. Who's one in your life at that moment? Satan. H-A-L, loneliness. You can get to the place where you're so lonely and you feel so bad about being lonely and you wish somebody would call you or reach out to you and nobody is and that, that fuels anger. It can fuel Depression. It can cause you to be like Elijah. You know, when Elijah ran from Jezebel and he hid in the cave, God didn't come to Elijah and put his arm around him and say, Elijah, I understand, buddy. Elijah, God came to Elijah and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What did Elijah say? I'm all alone. I'm the only one, God, who loves you. Everybody else doesn't seem to care. God said to Elijah, hey, man, I got 7,000 people in Israel that have not bowed their knees to Baal. Get out of this cave. Loneliness can drive you to despair and defeat and darkness. H A L T trouble you can be in the kind of trouble where you think God's doing nothing and you just give up throw your hands up in despair when Satan came to Eve it was first about the physical and the material then it was about beauty and glory when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was delight to the eyes. It would bring beauty. It would bring glory. Satan came to Jesus, Luke 4. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, verse 5. In a moment of time, Satan said, I'll give you all of these if you will just bow down and worship me. That's it. You want the power, the beauty, the glory? Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. John said, temptation is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. We want place and privilege and position to be noticed, not to be lonely, not to be left out. And then back in Genesis, the third temptation is about greatness and power. So when Satan comes to Eve, what she sees is that from her perspective, it not only was good for food, a delight to the eyes, but it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. When Satan came, To Jesus, in the third temptation, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Show your power. Show your greatness. Show how wonderful you really are. And then in John, John says temptation works this way. It appeals to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're all born with desires, and we're all born with desires that are natural and normal. But we're also all born in sin. And because of that sin, Satan can seduce us through those natural desires and cause our nature, our sinful nature, then to participate in sinful activities. Can it happen in a church among brothers and sisters? We want what we want. We want to be recognized. We want to be affirmed. We want to be celebrated. Sure. That's why we need to know one final thing before we go. James 1, just want to show you this. You know this, but I want us to see it. How does sin happen? We don't want to sin. We don't want to sin against God. We don't want to sin against our brothers and sisters. So why does it happen? Listen to what James says in chapter 1 of James, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now, in the previous verse, Using the same word, James is talking about testing, trials. But now he's talking about temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God did this to me. God made me desire these things. God made me long for these things. God made me say these things. God made me act in this way. No, no. No one of us can say I'm being tempted by God. In the original language, there's another way of translating this. I've wrestled with this for years, years. Because the most natural way of translating this is this way. I am being tempted from God. Now, someone can be in a sin, and I think this is what James means. When you are living in sin, do you long to be with the people of God? No. But if you're not with the people of God and somebody says, hey, we missed you the last three months, four months, five months, are you going to say, well, it's because i got sin in my life? What are they going to say? Well... I know some of those people at that church, and they're such horrible people. I'm not going to be around them because of who they are. They're lying. They're away because they've got sin in their life, and they're they're being tempted away from God. God would never do that. Satan would. I'm being tempted by God. I'm being tempted away from God. Either way, God doesn't do that. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So how does it happen? Here's how it happens. God would never, ever tempt us away from him, so this is how it happens. Verse 13. uh, Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin begins with Satan connecting with a natural desire, something that's a part of our nature. And he convinces us to nurture it, to nourish it, to think about it, to dream about it, to want it. Each person is tempted when he is lured like bait on the end of a fishing rod. That's the term. And enticed by his own desire. We keep paying attention to that desire, wanting that desire fulfilled. Then the desire, when it has conceived, conceived, I believe, means that it comes to a place, you come to a place where you're consumed by this. You're just consumed by this. It's all you can think about, dream about. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin happens. Now I can tell you that one of the biggest differences between a believer and an unbeliever, when an unbeliever sins, there is no sense of Absolute horror at the sin. Don't like that I did it. Don't like that I said it. But oh well. What about for you as a believer? When we're tempted to sin and we give in to temptation, which we do, right? How do you feel right after you've sinned? You should smell like death to yourself. You should be odious to yourself. You should despise yourself. Not because, only because, you've sinned against a brother or sister. What's worse? You've sinned against God. One of the joys that comes with being a believer is that God never leaves us. The Holy Spirit's always present. Now, how many of you have had this experience? Don't raise your hand, but we're going to end here. How many of you had this experience? That what James says here is true. Satan appeals to this desire, and you nurture that desire, and you think about that desire, and you move in the direction of satisfying that desire, and while you're doing that, it feels right. It not only feels right, it feels good. It gets to the place where you can't help yourself. And then, as a believer, you sin. And as soon as you sin, you know where Satan is? He's laughing. He's laughing. You know where God is? You're my child. You're my child. Confess your sin. And if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The source of sin is not outside of us. The source of sin is within us. And in some strange way, God uses temptation and sin to grow us from immaturity into maturity because... As believers, we see the horror of sin, and we want to fight sin because we know what sin does to our souls, what sin does to our relationship to God, and what sin does to our relationship to others. Oh God, we thank you that you have come in Jesus to cleanse us from all sin, to forgive us and to free us to shape us and to use us for your glory. God, I pray for every brother and sister in this room that you would not ever let us get comfortable with sin. And help us to have the wisdom, the discernment to know when Satan is present and when he's drawing us away from you and away from other brothers and sisters into ourselves thinking that we have rights that others do not have and that the satisfaction of our desires is good and right because of who we are. And God, I pray most of all that you would help us not to spend our lives looking at ourselves and our sin, but to spend our lives looking at Jesus who is the Savior for all who believe from all sin. Fix our eyes on Him and focus our hearts on Him. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, our intention every morning, beginning in the morning, will be to love Him more fully and to follow Him more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.